Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the way of product design. I'm Caden Damiano. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock its true value and tie your design work to business impact? This show interviews product designers, product managers, and tech leads from places like Google, Domo, Divi, IBM, Intuit, and Uber to find out what makes a valuable product designer and how you can be one as well. Hey listeners, this is an interview I've wanted to happen for a long time. Uh, I bought this guy's book two years ago and it's changed uh, my thinking on how you practice the craft of UX. Um, and it was a very uh, liberating mind shift. It, it was less about frameworks but being more of a critical thinker, which um, if you listen to a lot of my interviews and episodes moving forward, is more about like, okay, how can you be a better critical thinker? And the real value that you can add as a designer is your ability to think critically about a problem and how the project changes every step of the way. So I'd like to introduce you to Joe Natoli if you haven't heard of him yet, which would be pretty hard because he's pretty well known in the UX community. Uh, Joe, how about you introduce yourself to the listener and just talk about like what drives you and like what has put you on this path to you know doing what you do. Well, uh, as you said, I'm a UX consultant, uh, speaker, author. I've been doing what I do for about 29 years. So we're going on like, you know, three decades here, which makes me feel as old as I am. And um, 
you know, I, I learned I learned design when it was just graphic design, pre-internet, pre-free software service, pre-all that stuff. But, but to me, it's always been the same thing. And what has sort of always gotten me out of bed in the morning is I, I, I call what I do, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I call what I do, everything I do to me is like an antidote to bullshit. <laughs> because I think there's... Design was this way, you know, when it was just graphic design and, and into UI design, into user experience practice, software development. There are these artificial rules around what to do and how to do it. And, and there's sort of gatekeeping going on all the time about, you know, this way is the one way. This method is the right method. This process is the right method. These tools are the right tools. Um, I, I've never bought that. Uh, I still don't buy it. And I think that that uh, what it does as a practitioner, it does two things. As a practitioner, it, it keeps your focus very narrow, um, makes you a lot less effective than you probably could be if you were a little more open-minded. And it also underserves um, the clients uh, that, that you serve and the users that you serve. I think everybody pays, you know, and, and um, as, as I think a lot of people are waking up to, it also keeps a lot of people from getting a seat at the table, from being allowed to play the game. And, and when I say that, I mean, um, you know, black people in particular, um, I think it, it keeps people marginalized. It keeps people isolated. So there's nothing good that comes from blind adherence to rules, you know, or processes or tactics. Um, it just doesn't help anything. So anymore, like what, what really gets, continues to get me out of bed in the morning is that, you know, is that, is that people are struggling everywhere everywhere i go people are struggling and it's my job to help them clear all that garbage out of the way <laughs> mm -hmm. and and get to what works you know yeah it's a very practical approach to the profession um and you know the the uh, reason that we i reached out to you to do this episode because i needed a good mm -hmm. reason like a good soapbox for you to rant on um <laughs> is uh this post that you uh you uh, wrote on LinkedIn, and I'm just going to start here. So open quote, I have changed, modified, plus mashed up my own methods hundreds of times over the last 20 years. I borrow quite liberally from multiple ideas, processes, and sources as often as possible. Yes, including the much maligned design thinking. I am never opposed to trying anything. I keep what works for the specific business, product, or service, or user combination, and I throw everything else out. And I could give less than a shit whether it's actually UX or not. I do it works, what gets the intended result. If the users benefit and the business sees a return, a reason to keep providing value to those users, I'm good. These outcomes are the reason I have a career. So, yep. um, like, had you received a lot of uh, pushback for you're kind of you're more of a, you're more a free form way of approaching like UX. Like, do you have people like debating with you a lot about sure. this? Sure. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most mostly private. I don't get a lot of I don't get a lot of public pushback. Um, and I suppose there's reasons for that. But I do get some some public pushback. I've had people argue vehemently with me on Twitter um, and on LinkedIn. And, you know, part of that is I don't. I don't like to do that necessarily. I think the debate is a giant, tremendous waste of everyone's time. Okay, this, this, you know, p 
people spend hours of their lives debating over like you're right and I'm wrong and this is the way you do it and this is not the way you do it and that's not really UX. I mean, what a tremendous waste of time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just tremendous. I mean, what are we arguing over here? Semantics, interpretation, um, personal opinion, right? Which everyone has a right to. Okay. And I, I always say that I don't believe that everybody has to do things my way either. Um, which is kind of what I'm saying. I mean, if I have a message in a nutshell, I suppose that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you don't have to take my word for it either. I'm telling you what's worked for me. Um, and, and, and that's about the end of it. So <clears throat> I, th- I think that it's just, I think people do that to, to protect themselves in some way. I, I think they feel threatened. I think that they feel like maybe their expertise will be seen as less somehow. Um, if somebody says what I say, you know that it means that their method isn't valid somehow, which is not the case uh, whatsoever. I just, I think that every situation is different. Every client is different. Every project is different. Every constraint you're ever gonna have to work under in any situation is gonna be different. You can't just throw a one size fits all approach at it and assume that everything is gonna, gonna work out the way it should. Nothing in life works that way. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, the... <clears throat> so you measure your work more by, okay, is there an obvious business outcome that we've driven with our work? Or people that were no, helped. Are, are people that were helped, right? And it doesn't necessarily have to be both. Sometimes, you know, the customers went out a little bit more. Sure. You know, there's, sure. there's money left on the table, right? Um, but, like, how do you go about measuring that? Like, do you talk about that in your courses? Like, where, how do you, how do you shift from, like, oh, this is how I, my process, like, this is how I do my process to, everything you talk about is like the outcomes you're working towards because if you have the right outcomes and you're able to tell that story then your process is very malleable at that point like we're spending an extra month in discovery because of these reasons these constraints right like we don't know right. if we could build this yet like yeah which is how you have to which is always along the way how you have to make those cases right or have those those back and forth discussions you know if if i feel like look we need another day talking to people, you know, or I'm working with a team and they go, well, we need at least another week. And, and, you know, the product owners don't want to give it to us. I say, well, then let's have this conversation right now. Why do you need that extra week? What's going to get you? And more importantly, what's it going to get them? <laughs> because they're the ones you have to convince. Okay. It doesn't matter. We can sit here in this room right now and say, well, it'll help users do A, B, and C, and that may translate into business results that are D, E, and F, okay? That doesn't matter unless you can make that case very compellingly to the people who are holding the, the, the or keeping the gates of time, budget, whatever the case may be, right? You gotta tell them something they care about. If you're gonna advocate for eight more hours or eight more days or whatever it is, you gotta have a really good reason to wanna do that, and you have to be able to say why you wanna do that. Sometimes it's, it's more than, look, the way this is going, I feel like if we spent another two days, right, 48 hours, it's entirely possible that this could save us a couple weeks of rework down the line. In other words, if we spend a little extra time to get this right, it may save us two weeks off our schedule. 
Okay, a project manager, for example, is gonna listen to that argument. Okay, you've got their attention right now because they're on the hook for what? Less time, less money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so it's all about it's all about what you say and how you say it. But the end result and the process and everything else uh, is the same justification. Like you asked me about outcomes. I had a small debate um, a couple of days ago with, with somebody uh, online, and most of it was offline. A little bit of it was, was online on Twitter. And the whole thing was about measurement and KPIs and data. And, and the argument was, well, well, how do you measure that? I said, look, <laughs> it's money made, money saved, people helped in some meaningful way. I'm looking for evidence of any one of those things. And I don't care how I get it. Okay, it doesn't have to be formal reporting or formal measurement or formal KPIs or tracking and analysis. I don't give a shit. Did it happen or didn't it? Okay, and do we know whether it happened or not? I don't care how we know. If you run a call center, okay, and and you do something online, even if the goal of the project isn't to reduce call center calls, right, support calls. But after four weeks, one of the metrics, one of the analytics that we have in front of us is, okay, these guys are, and gals are all fielding maybe 40% less calls than they were three weeks ago. That's worth paying attention to. I don't care whether it shows up on a report or not. It's worth paying attention to, mm-hmm. right? So everybody wants, I think my, my issue is, as you can tell, I'm getting heated. Um, everybody wants empirical proof, right? We've got, we have to have data. We have to have measurement. We have to have like, it's not always going to be there. Not only is it not always going to be there, you're also a lot of times not going to have any access to it. Okay, teams in particular, most of the teams that I worked with um, very rarely, really, truly get to see the end result of their work. All that they know is that nobody's bitching anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's sort of the extent of it. Um, but, you know, managers get hung up on this stuff too. Executives get hung up on this stuff. So they're like, well, we don't really have the data that we expected. I said, well, what, you know, I'll say, well, what do you have? What is trending? What is happening in the last three weeks or six weeks? Um, and, and, and that's always the key too. Everybody wants an answer right away, right? We want to know whether we had a positive or negative outcome, you know, eight hours after we, we launch a new, a new update or a feature or a product or whatever the case may be. And it's just not possible, okay? you're going to wait at least four weeks before you see anything that's meaningful. That's even, that even hints or suggests something meaningful, meaningful in terms of positive outcome. So it's the same kind of thing. I think if you get hung up on the methods and the means and the, and the, and the process and then how it's delivered and how rigorous it is, you know, it's a waste of time. What do you know right now? What do you know? It's what I ask teams all the time. They get bent out of shape about maybe we're not solving the right problem, right? We don't have access to this. We weren't allowed to do this. We couldn't spend enough time um, interviewing users, whatever the case may be. What do you know right now? Forget about all that. Forget about what you couldn't do or what you didn't do. What do you know right now? <laughs> and, and it's amazing to me, maybe because I shouldn't say that because I'm on the outside of it, right? It's easy for me to be objective because I'm not right in the middle of it. So that's what I was going to say, I think is an unfair thing to say. I was gonna say it was amazing to me that, that people um, get so wrapped up and bent out of shape about, about this kind of stuff. You know, when, when all you really need to do in a lot of situations 
is just take stock of what's happening around you and what you do have access to, right? The people you can talk to. And it's okay if it's not perfect, right? It's okay if it's not the ideal way to do this. It's okay if it's not the right amount of time that you think it should take. What you got is what you got. You can spend an eternity banging your head against the wall saying, well, this isn't the way it should be. It doesn't matter. This is the way it is. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the, the objective truth, right? Um, you know, I'm, Nassim Taleb talks about, calls it like the, in, the inductive uh, fallacy where, you mm -hmm. know, they could, uh, if you can induce just based off like the data, like you have high certainty of like the probability of something happening. And he's like, most of the, the big things that are going to impact your business or like uh, are outside of your models. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely yeah. positively 100,000% correct. Yeah. A lot of like the ROI of like a good product does not fit in some MBA's spreadsheet. Um, like think about it. So um, I, was I was reading the James Dyson autobiography and he was talking mm -hmm. about like the first product he worked on outside of uh, school. And it was this uh, boat, truck boat. And in the original iteration, it didn't have like a enclosed cabin on the top. So like you're exposed to like the elements mm -hmm. and uh, he was getting feedback. Now he was cool. He was like a legit product designer. Like he designed it, saw it through manufacturing and went on the road to sell it. Nice. Like sold, went to government and sold it. So like he understood like every little change could impact business. Mm -hmm. um, but you go to the board of directors and say like, I think like we should be putting designing a, enclosed cabin on the top of this thing like we're getting requests for it um and there's an obvious need for it and they're like okay we'll sell 10 more boats and then 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 get back to us and this kept happening <laughs> over and over yeah. again you know and yeah. he's just beating his head against a, a wall to like sell more boats when it's not meeting the needs of customers and then eventually they let him do it and he's like and then something weird happened sales went up i don't know why <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's like, you can't model like the, the potential success of a feature. Like I think every, no. everything you ship in a way is a bet. Um, and, always. But, yeah. It's everything actually, you it's do always a is a bet. Yeah. Everything you do is a bet. And I think that's part of the problem. Okay. From, from us as designers and UXers to development and engineering teams to, um, product owners to CEOs and CFOs and, you know, people all the way down the line to board members, investors, whatever. All of this is about the fear of being wrong. <laughs> and we want this mountain of evidence because we're afraid of being wrong. Okay. We want all this user research because damn it, we have to be absolutely hundred percent right, which is not possible. You know, one of my favorite books on research, for example, is Erica Hall's um, just enough research. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And one of the things she talks about a lot, and she said this in podcasts and things like that as well, is that data doesn't give you answers, <laughs> right? Research and analysis doesn't give you answers. It tells you where to look, <laughs> right? It, it, it points you in a direction. This idea that we could completely get rid of risk or minimize it to some completely unreasonable minuscule degree, it's a fallacy. It's a fallacy. And we cling to all these things, I think, because we're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of taking a wrong turn. We're afraid of screwing up, 
Um, and not just us, like I said, everybody, everybody involved. That's why there's this need for, we have, we need to have data. We need to have data. Data is not going to give you any answers. Okay. It's not, it's going to suggest that what's, what's happening right now is working, or it's going to suggest that what's happening right now is broken. And it may certainly point the way, right? It'll tell you where to dig, (laughs) but in and of themselves, I mean, that, that, that those answers are not there. So I get the need for all of it. I'm, I'm a believer in all of it, in all those things. I absolutely am. I think they can all be leveraged and all, they can all be used. But there are far too many instances where it's not possible. And people essentially sit on their hands and go, well, we're not going to do anything because we can't do this and we can't do this and we can't do that. And, and I think that's a waste of time. Sometimes you just, you got to go. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, business leaders aside, uh, UXers, do fall in this trap that like, I didn't talk to at least like yes. 10 users or I didn't, I didn't prototype this out yes. or, um, like, yeah, no I time didn't, for user personas or, yeah, we didn't make personas. Oh no. Or we, we didn't do a design sprint or, you know, and it's not. And then you ask them like, okay, well, like, why is it so important that we do a design sprint? And they're like, well, we need to like rapidly ideate and stuff. And I'm like, well, no, that I know that's important, but like, why do we need to rapidly ideate? Oh, because we need some screens. And I'm like, well, why do we need screens right now? And it's like, well, like the VP of products breathing down our neck and like, we need to come up with something. Why is the VP of product breathing down your neck? Right. You're all, you're absolutely doing, yeah. you're on the right path, right? Yeah. Like it's why, um, why when someone's being yeah. unreasonable, that's the question. Why are they being unreasonable? When someone won't give you what you need or won't agree to something, why? And that answer to that is usually, like I said, it's fear. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, they're worried about their job. They're not, I mean, sometimes on, on a bl- once in a blue moon, uh, there's a rationale that I, I could get behind. Like, oh well, you know, we haven't we haven't answered these questions yet. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's do that. Um, but yeah, most of the time, um, it's not a really like good reason. Like, and honestly, like timelines and deadlines are always arbitrary. And actually, I think. But at the same time, it doesn't take that long to provide value to the customer in this day and age. I think it's just how we like reframe up the work and how we look at it and just get a little bit more like focused in on like, okay, well, what, how can we like impact value mm-hmm. right now? And sometimes it take you could project it out like to six months. Like one time I told, I was proposing like a big overhaul and I told the PM, like, he's like, well, how long will this take? And I'm like, I, I, I'm pretty confident we could do it in six months. And I was really happy because it did take six months. So I'm like, yes, good estimate. Nice. Um, but he's like, that's too long. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, we need to ship something like now. And I'm like, well, how, okay, unless you come up, you came up to the answer to this question, this question, this question. I think we need to take the time. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, did you answer those questions? Do you, do you know something I don't? Oh no. Okay. Well then we're going to have to do the work. <laughs> Stop yeah. avoiding the work. You got to roll, yep. you know, there's dirty hard work in the UX that people avoid and they yep. think that they can replace it with a design sprint or something like that. Yeah. There's a part of your book and uh, it's actually like the one quote that like I remember the most is um, no strategy equals failure every time. Right. Could you um, expound a little bit on that? Like sure. what strategy is, what it's, what it's not. 
to me, it's, to me it's, it's really simple, okay? Strategy, strategy is knowing why you're doing any of this, okay? Strategy is knowing what's worth doing in the first place. <laughs> you know, it's why. If you don't know why, you're just sort of flailing about and, and going off in a million different directions and you're wasting a whole lot of time and energy and effort. And, and you know, that energy is not only physical, it's mental, it's emotional. It's, um, you know, it's what causes people and teams and organizations a great deal of stress. It's because no one will take a step back and take five minutes to think about, okay, why are we doing this? Why is this requirements list a million miles long, right? Why do we have to have these six features baked in in the next two weeks? For what reason? <laughs> What's it going to gain us individually and collectively? That's really, if you can boil down strategy to anything, it's, it's why. Why are we doing this, right? What's the outcome? Like you just talked about deadlines, for example. The tactical rush is, well, we need to, we need to be shipping every two weeks. Okay, I talked to a team six months ago who was shipping every week. Now they also had a backlog that was well over like 250 items and it was growing by about 75 items every week. And this is the second time I've encountered something like this um, very recently. <laughs> and I said, well, answer me this. Why are you shipping every week? What, what meaningful incremental change could you possibly be making on a weekly basis? Because I'm here to tell you, right? And people I'll get, I'm sure I'll get mail about this as well. There's no way you're releasing stuff that really truly matters every seven days. You're not. You may be fixing bugs, which is fine, right? To make all the sense in the world. You may be tweaking performance, little things like that, absolutely fine. But you're gonna be hard pressed to convince me that every seven days is a, is a necessity unless we're talking about like, I, I don't know, um, healthcare <laughs> or some field where, where there is some real heavy consequence um, that this doesn't happen or you show me a situation where there's a real heavy consequence, which I'm sure exists. But by and large, most teams are shipping in a, at a frequency or running sprints at a frequency or doing agile, um, in whatever flavor at a, at a speed and frequency that, that they don't even really know why they're doing it, okay? No one really knows why they have to ship every two weeks. No one really truly knows the answer to that question. Um, so strategy is about, you know, you gotta take a step back and say, why are we doing this? Um, I talked to dev teams in particular because I've worked, consulted with plenty of organizations who have development and engineering teams but no designers, no UX people, all right? That's still very common. And some of those folks have no plans to hire any. But they know they're in trouble and they know they, they need to get out of trouble. And I say, well, the first thing you gotta do is be really rigorous about what makes it on your to-do to list and what doesn't. Everything, every item on that list should have to fight for its right to be there. If you can't attach a statement to every single one, like user stories, for example, I, I harp on a lot because teams still use them and I hate them. Hmm but there should be a justification at the end, all right? We're doing this because as an organization, it's gonna get us this, as use, gonna give users this, but here's what's gonna be the end result of that. And if you can't connect that chunk of work to a statement that says, here's what the benefit is to people and here's what the benefit is back to us, it waits. 
Okay. It waits. It has no reason for being because you don't even know why the hell you're doing it in the first place. That's wasted efforts, wasted work. It's the kind of shit that you're going to have to redo five or six times down the road because everyone's like, okay, why did we do that? Yeah. <laughs> and it's usually just, it, it's fear, you know? I'll tell you a story. I had deadlines, th this kind of thing. I was consulting with a, a team um, in New York, actually, for a fairly large organization who you would know the name of if I said it out loud. And we're having a conversation, and the deal is they had like a couple of people who sort of dabbled in UX, and, and my job there for three weeks was to sort of get people up to speed. The, the product owner put it to me, he said, I want them to sort of be able to ride the UX bike and then keep riding when you're gone. I said, okay. So we're, we're working through a session and one of the, one of the other product owners bursts in. He's like, like in front of me, like doesn't care that, you know, we're doing something. He's like, why are all these people in this room? We've got a deadline to meet. What the, they said, what the fuck is going on here? And I'm like, uh, okay. And he proceeds to, you know, get really animated and berate a couple of people. He's like, this has to be this. We have to get this work done by this date. And it's got to be happening by this Friday. And I don't give a shit what else happens or what else you guys have to do. You're going to meet this date. And he does all this stuff and then he leaves. So when we take a break, I walk down to the office of, of the guy who brought me in, who's, who's a colleague of this guy, right? They're on equal footing. I said, let me tell you what just happened. And I related to him and I said, can we maybe sit down with that person and have a conversation with them? <laughs> and he said, sure. So he, he did that and, and we sat down and I said, I said, look, there's obvious stress here in, in your voice. Well, you know, what I just witnessed, you, you came in and, and sort of lost temper, which I don't think is a good thing for what it's worth. Um, but one of the reasons I'm here, okay, is to help these guys work better with you as well, right? So it's not just about them learning. It's about all of you working better together. It's about alleviating the stress that I see in your face and in your voice <laughs> right now. So I'll butt out if you want me to. But tell me, like, you know, you, you said you got this deadline, this, 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 this. What's driving that? So... I mean, the thing, the thing I wanted to know is like, you know, what is, what is behind this When Someone gets that upset. There's always something more behind it, right? What's driving this? So he gave me the typical, you know, things of like, well, we have to, we have a responsibility to be shipping software and, you know, we can't take time out and rob, right? He's given me all the, the sort of pat stuff that I've heard a million times, right? Customers are, you know, yada, 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 and management wants this. I said, well, what's happening? Okay. What took place? <laughs> what's what's the what's really driving this so finally i sort of wear him down politely and he says our largest customer who represents you know something like 62 percent of our business called the ceo on the phone and said if you guys don't show some progress for these same features that you've been promising me for six months which no one knew okay that the ceo was promising anybody anything he goes they're going to pull their contract. I said, well, don't you think that warrants a larger conversation <laughs> with people? Okay. Don't you think if you go to the team, right, and you say, here's the situation, it's bullshit, but here's the situation. 
what can reasonably happen within the next five days that shows progress in this area? Because the chances are really, 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 really good that there are a number of things that would calm that person down. And they don't have to be these huge, major, massive, giant improvements, right? It could be something small. It could be something that is absolutely doable in five days. But when people don't communicate, okay, and no one knows what's going on and people are being kept in the dark, this is what happens. Everything becomes a big, giant thing. And there's always something else driving it. So, I, I mean, I guess we're sort of circling back to to where we started in a way, and that there's always more than one way to do things. You know, incremental change and improvement, there's no one way to do that. These don't have to be grand sweeping gestures, right? If you make small improvements to things that really piss people off, for example, <laughs> and sometimes that's language, it's labeling, it's, it's the visibility of buttons, it's alignment, it's, it's all sorts of little tiny nitpicky things, right? You can buy yourself time. You can get everybody to calm down internally and externally, right? Because they feel like, okay, they heard us. They're listening. They addressed some of the things that we're complaining about. But this idea that it has to be everything all at once is typically how it goes. And a lot of the reason that happens is because people just aren't telling each other what's up. And no one's being just straightforward and honest about what's really going on, right? So process won't fix that. You know what I mean? Yeah, process is just more of like a safety blanket. You know, it's like the whole like, oh, if I cover myself with the blanket, the yeah, monster won't insulation. get me. You know, absolutely, <laughs> um, absolutely. But yeah, it's it sounds like uh, from designers could provide a lot of value, and I think this applies to any field, but I think design specifically because we're in a position where we are kind of detached from delivery, so we have that luxury of. Like our job description isn't about shipping software, so we can take that, make that distance. Um, and uh, that's my son making elephant noises in the background. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. COVID, COVID life. Um, yeah, man, I got two at home. Don't, don't oh, worry yeah. about it. <laughs> um, but uh, we can we need to like we could identify the why, but make it, make sure that's a good why. Because a strategy, you know, yeah, right, sure it's, it's white. To something. Uh, but a strategy isn't an OKR. <laughs> no. Like, what's what's the strategy behind the OKR? Why are we doing this? And um, and it could just be right. like, Why yeah. Why do you want that? I mean, and it could be a valid business reason. Like, we have this big client that we need to ship something for them. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. It's not the most ideal situation. I've been in those situations where it's like, oh, it's this big, big national retailer we need to get this up on their site ASAP. Sure. And, and I'm like, cool, that makes sense. I don't think it's a big strategic initiative though. I think it's just a small tactical thing. It makes sense that we need to do it. You know, you have you have small stuff that you need to worry about in a business. You know, there's obviously fires you need to put out, but what could we have thought about before this happened so that this wouldn't have happened in the first place? Um, and that to me is like what good strategy is, is like it removes the need for any like reactive, uh, you know, BS. Right. And, um, you know, getting ahead of and anticipating what could happen. I'm I'm sure you've read that book, good strategy, bad strategy. Um, 
I haven't read it, but I've heard yeah. of it. Yeah, it's it, it, like it talk. Um, sorry, someone tried to call me. All right, um, <laughs> this, this is this has been a, COVID. a hell COVID. of an interview. Um, <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, we're making our way through the hour. Um, this has been a great conversation, by the way. But you know, he talks about how you know a strategy isn't isn't uh, isn't like a, a vision statement. It's not a goal. That's right. Um, and he talks about the story of like Hannibal when he invaded Italy. That um, you know, there's this battle that ended up being like probably like one of the highest casualty battles in the history of like warfare. Um, and back then, like the senators and the Roman army would go to the battle as well. And Hannibal designed his ranks to um, cave in. So he knew that like the how the Romans fought. He knew the mm-hmm. constraints of the situation, and he made it so that he had like one portion of his army in the center that would collapse as like the Roman army would like push through in their like uh, phalanx, mm-hmm. and they basically surrounded the whole Roman army, killed all their senate, like slaughtered them and stuff. But um, the get the point of this was that. Um, strategy is designed Hannibal designed his ranks to receive the Roman army and that's how he beat him and then the Romans eventually beat Hannibal because they just he was invading uh, army like all they needed to do is just wait him out and then eventually his army would disperse like so then the Romans actually designed a strategy that they're like oh let's not fight him in open combat and stuff but that's the whole idea is that yeah, change tactics, a strategy is designed and I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Well, who's good at designing stuff? Us designers. designers. <laughs> um, <laughs> why aren't we designing strategies? But exactly right. And, and all that takes is, is asking the right questions, right? What are, we, are we, are we getting what we intended or, or are we not? You know, I, I always, I tell teams all the time. Okay. Especially the ones that are panicked, which is all of them. <laughs> Um, an hour, okay, is not going to kill you, all right? An hour, taking an hour to step back and really think through this is not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to break anything. It's not going to make a huge, massive difference in the work that you, workload that you have right now. It's just not. I know you think it is. It's not. Okay, if anything, it stands to save you some unnecessary work and some unnecessary headache or heartache <laughs> or stress or, um, you know, any number of things. You always have an hour, always, always, always. And you got to be ruthless about sort of insisting on taking it. You know, we need to step back here. We're going a million miles an hour and no one knows what the hell we're even aiming for. Let's take a step back, right, and just regroup. Yeah. Um, going back to like what Nassim Taleb was saying. So he was uh, presenting at a, like a conference. He was talking about probability in casinos and he's like, casinos actually aren't that like improbable. So like he talks about like, it's very controlled. The variables Mm -hmm. are very controlled. The odds are heavily stacked in the favor of the house. Sure. But what he thought was funny is he's like, it's really interesting how you guys spend so much money on like, you know, facial recognition to like find card counters and cheaters and stuff like that. And then he points out like the black swans of like, like what happened? What about the time where this, uh, this tiger 
like ate its trainer at Circus Circus or, um, yeah, right. or like right. you didn't, you didn't plan to insure for that. So that claim was pretty big. Um, oh, or the time that like the, the casino owner's daughter was kidnapped and the casino owner broke a bunch of laws and he dipped in the, the, the coffers of the casino to pay the ransom. And he's like, the amount of all these random, small, highly leveraged events cost way more than all this like facial recognition software. Than the things that you're worried about. Yeah, right? that, like all the stuff that you're trying to model, right? Yeah. And like anticipate and stuff. And, you know, I think anything that any great product, um, what made, made it great was just a few moments of time with the customer. It wasn't because yeah. you're releasing every two weeks or continuously adding value, whatever that means. It's like we want to continuously release and add value and stuff. Um, and uh, that doesn't really increase the likelihood of success. Like, I mean, I, I imagine I, I have a hypothesis. No, more is not better. Yeah. I have a hypothesis, Joe, that uh, the greatest success, like the success indicator of your product is how people feel about it when they're not using it. <laughs> like, are they I'd say that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I love my Dyson vacuum. It's not because I use it all the time. It's because I don't, it, the amount of time I need to use it is very low and it's very efficient mm -hmm. and it's cordless and it's charges. It's like AirPods. Just put it on my wall. Um, and you know, like you look at Dyson's R and D cycle, they spend years. They'll, they're like Apple. Like they'll, they, they will not try to be the first they will wait until they could do the job very, very well before they release something. And that goes against the whole like lean startup, fast release cycle. Like they're going to make sure that they do it right and better than anyone else, even if like Android does it first. Because right. Right. they know that like one that one that one event, if they do it right and that moment with the customer is amazing, like it's gonna make it all worth it. All the all the hard work to make it happen if you yeah. highly leverage that time. Right. So, I mean, what's happened with, you know, Agile and, and um, Lean UX and, and all these things, um, like I've been having some interesting conversations with Jeff Godelf recently who wrote um, the Lean UX book and Josh Seiden, his partner. Um, when, when anything becomes dogmatic, right? When, when, when we want to apply Agile, we want to apply Lean UX, we want to apply design thinking, the minute it becomes dogmatic, it, it starts to cease to be useful because life and, and everything in it um, work is, is filled with nuance, right? It's filled with points where you have to pivot. You have to, you have to adapt. You have to change. You have to flex. Um, so this whole obsession with fast, for example, became conflated with, well, speed is agile, right? Or speed is lean or, or releasing every week or always be shipping and all this other bullshit, move fast and break things, you know, Facebook. When none of that was really ever the initial intention <laughs> of that stuff. It was about better. Agile came about as a response to making things better. If you read the, the, the original manifesto, to me, it's like a monument, it's a testament to better. There's a better way to do this. And its founders weren't dogmatic about it at all, okay? They were saying, here are the constraints, here are the guidelines, and here are some ways to go about doing it. Other folks came along after that and turned it into this, this war of religious beliefs where it's like, no, Agile is done this way. No, it's done this way. Or Scrum is done this way. Like, ah, 
you know, you, you feel like what, what I always want is I always want the founders of these movements to come out of the word work and go, hey, not what I intended at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cut the shit. Play nice. Nothing's perfect all the time. And, and it just by and large doesn't happen. Um, but I have a real problem with that. When, when things become like law, like this is the way you do this. It's when you know you're going to be in trouble because you're following the wrong things, right? You're doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Even if you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, you're still going to wind up in a place that's not very pleasant, you know, and, and teams and companies and individuals experience this over and over and over and over and over again. And we're still having these debates about what things are called or how they're done. <laughs> I think one thing we need to realize is that when there's a very like prescribed framework, like a dogmatic framework, it's really just to package some IP up so that they can make money off it. In like most cases, yeah. Yeah, it's just like you need to package up the IP of a design sprint so that you could run a design sprint agency. The customers are expecting you to run sprints or facilitate workshops for them. And like it's all process driven, but you could, it's easy to package up and sell, right? It's not easy to sell like, oh, well, it depends all the time. <laughs> like, oh, tell me the secret to do good yex. Oh, yeah, well, it depends. No one likes that answer. Think it makes first. Uncomfortable. So, like, you know, I'm sure you get it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. Because it's not the answer they want. What they want is. They want surety. They want certainty. They want they want um, safe bets. And the longer you do anything, what you learn is that there's no such thing. There's no such thing. Some bets are safer than others, to be sure. Um, that doesn't mean you don't ever know anything. You do, but you're, you're never going to be shy. To my way of thinking, right, and what I've experienced, at least, um, I don't think you're ever going to be absolutely sure of what you're doing or how it's going to turn out or what their end result is going to be. You do as much as you can to shore up those ideas. You investigate your research. Um, you try to make decisions based on what you see, right? What's happening around you, what you experience. You pivot where you need to, you know, and I say to teams about process in particular all the time. If you're doing something that you all sit here in this room and you know it's an absolute waste of time, stop doing it. I can't tell you how many teams I've talked to who insist they have to have stand-ups. And to a person, if there are 12 people in the room, 11 of them are going, we don't accomplish anything at startups, at, at stand-ups rather, <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, they're just a tremendous waste of time. People report, they say what they're doing, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm stuck, blah, 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 no one cares, everybody moves on. I said, so why do you do them? <laughs> the answer, nobody knows. <laughs> That's just what you do. Right. That's not agile. Shit. I mean, and, and it's not, they're not even 15 minutes at this point. They're like 30, 35 minutes. Yes. Yeah. So, well, reclaim that part of your life. Have another cup of coffee. I mean, do something. <laughs> okay. But, but shit, yeah. stop doing that. You know, stop doing that. If it's not getting you anything, if it's not helping anybody, right. If it's not lifting anybody's ability to, to be better at what they do or, or easing their stress or um, get rid of uncertainty or, or something. I mean, if there's no positive outcome, shit, try something else. That that sounds like a challenging prospect because you you do run in like an educationing an education company where yeah. you have to package it up in a certain way. But like, how do you package it without making giving like your students like false expectations of how UX should be done? I'll tell you how. 
Um, and this is something that students struggle with. Okay. And I get feedback about this as well. Um, not always negative. Okay. But, but they struggle with it. Um, people want concrete steps. They want very specific processes. They want exercises that say, well, now how do I exactly apply that to this situation? I don't do that. <laughs> I've never done that. Um, and I probably will never do that. And the reason I don't do that is because I don't think it's helpful. I think it, it boxes you into one way of doing something. So what I try to do is I try to give examples. Here's how this could play out. All right. So for example, you're working on this type of project and you start here and then you do this and then you do this and then you do this. A lot of the mini courses in my UX 365 Academy, for example, the shorter pieces in particular, where it's a 20 minute video or it's a, you know, something um, short, even like a six or seven minute video. I'm giving specific responses to situations that I feel are fairly universal, right? Something that I've seen happen over and over and over and over and over again across the last 20 plus years. And I'm saying, well, when this thing happens and this thing happens and this thing happens, here's how you go about unpacking that. And it's never a bullet, silver bullet recipe of do this, do this, do this, do this. But it is start here, ask these questions, right? Pay attention to these things. Here's what you look out for. Um, it, it can't be as specific and as concrete as everyone really wants it to be because that's how you paint yourself in the corners. I am eventually going to come out with a, um, both a course and a workshop for organizations that I've been working on for about a year. That's essentially my process. Okay. If it's, if, if it's like, you know, how to do what Joe does, this is going to be what this is, but it's been challenging. And the reason it's been challenging is because the only part of this, that's really me that, that you could say is like Joe's process. There's an order to it and there are specific questions that I ask and there, there are typical sequences that I go through, but a lot of it changes based on what response I get at any given time, okay? Clients always want an agenda from me. If I'm gonna spend a week with them or two weeks or three weeks or even just a day, they want an agenda. And I say, well, here's the deal. If we're spending three days together, let's say, I'm happy to line out an agenda, okay, of, of the way I think it could go. But what I want you to understand is this. Something I hear in the very first hour or two that we're together may completely scrap that entire thing. And by the end of day one, okay, that determines what we're doing on day two and day three. I'm not ever just gonna, gonna stick to a script because I think there's no value in that. And very rarely in my life and my career has it ever gone that way. So you, you can plan forever but a lot of times in the very first day when we have lots of people from different departments working together and talking and drawing on the whiteboard and getting honest and being real about stuff that often changes what we need to spend the rest of our time on because you start to get a sense of where the real issues are or at least the areas where you need to do a little more digging because you're getting that for me if you've seen the movie before right you're getting the feeling that like uh, there's something really bad happening here we need to find out what it is <laughs> because otherwise none of this is going away, right? Unless we figure out what the heck is happening at this step because this makes no sense. Um, so that's kind of the way I do it. That makes for an uncomfortable situation sometimes for the folks that hire me. It makes for an uncomfortable situation for students at times. Um, I think that's okay. 
All right, I think that's okay because that's the way it is. I think it's a, it's a, to me, it's a mistake to be married to any one thing. So I'm going to give you parameters. I'm going to give you some high-level steps to take, directions to go in. I'll give you examples of those processes from end to end. I'm, I'm okay with that. But at no point am I going to tell you this is always the way you do it. Mm. You're never going to hear that come out of my mouth as long as I'm breathing. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, and what I get from your process is just understand the problem and then you're going to start getting, if you're experienced, you're going to start getting ideas of like how you could go about like solving that problem because you start getting questions like that haven't been answered. And then like I, in response to your post, I said like, there's a book called the universal methods of design and it's like a hundred different ways to go about defining and researching problems. One of my favorite books. Yeah. Yeah. It's killer. And uh, you know, you can understand all those methods and then like, as you understand the problem, you're like, Hmm, maybe we should do some ethnographic research here. Just get a little bit better understanding of how they actually use our product today. And then, Oh, maybe we'll do storyboards here. But, um, like it's, it's, I think that the only thing that needs to be standardized is really just immersing yourself in the problem and then the process will follow. Right. And that's yeah. basically it. Yeah. Right. You're the expert. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there, there are basic things that you do on day one, for example. Okay? Yeah. There are certain questions that you do always ask. There are certain things that I always invite people to do with me, you know, on a whiteboard. Those things don't ever change. But those are just the precursors to getting everybody to, to open up and, and go forward. So you can draw, you can draw steps around it. You can, you can have some boundaries. And I, I get that. But you can't ever expect... <laughs> I think to, to totally just stick to them because you're going to, you're going to hit a lot of bumps in the road where things just aren't working. Mm-hmm. And what do you do then? You know, do you, do you keep digging that hole <laughs> or, or do you back out and go, okay, there's nothing here. <laughs> we, we took a wrong turn somewhere. Where was it? You know, or if you're like forcing your way through like a design sprint, like you're forcing your way through a framework, even though you don't feel like anything's been resolved. Like, I mean, I, I just hate the facilitation where it's like, okay, like timer's up, like stop affinity mapping. And it's like, okay, well, we haven't answered these questions. I don't feel confident moving forward, but it's like, okay, well, we got, we got a tight schedule, you know, we got to move forward. And, uh, we did a design sprint where I work and, uh, thank goodness my manager is like intentional when he works like <laughs> we just went off format. As soon as like we went through it, we're like, oh, this is a bigger problem than we thought it was. And then we just spent the rest of the time just like making it more of like a design thinking workshop where we just moved around and brought in techniques. Right. But we didn't follow like the book and you know, you got to pivot, you got to change. Like you just, what you just, what you just described is a perfect example, right? I mean, why spend another hour (laughs) spinning your wheels? Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, yeah, Joe, this has been uh, a really great interview. Um, well, actually, like I'll let the listener decide that, but you, you've been a very awesome guest. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and uh, I just want to—I want to ask you a question. I ask every guest, and it's sure. the—it's the time machine question. So, if you had a time machine and you could go back into some point in your career or, tra- or your career trajectory. And you could give yourself advice or you could change something in the background. Uh, what would you change? And you can't say you wouldn't change anything because if you really had a time machine, you know, power <laughs> corrupts like you would, you would, you probably would do something like, so 
Um, like, what would you change? Mm, that's a hard question. With relation to career, I guess? Yeah, I guess like your career or like how, you, how you've approached projects or something like, or it could be life. You I, know, some people say they, they wish they buy a Lexus. So, <laughs> no, I think it, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it is, it is really a career sort of thing, but it's a life thing as well. I guess the longer I think about it, what, what I really think it is, I would, I would go back and change the, um, I would change the, the belief that I had for a long time when I was younger in particular and, and getting into this. And even when I started my own business, um, this belief that what I was doing was brain surgery, okay, that, that it was important enough to bend and contort yourself emotionally and mentally and psychologically um, in the service of like having, making everything had to be perfect or, or that, and it was, what that was mostly about is that I felt the need to be right all the time. I had a tremendous fear <laughs> of, of being wrong, of being uncertain, you know, of, of, it's that, it's that imposter syndrome pressure of everyone looking at you like you have to have all the answers. And I mean, I, imposter syndrome is something I still carry to this day, believe it or not, but it's changed radically. When I was just first starting out, I remember the last boss that I had used to say to me all the time, that phrase used to say, look, Joe, cause I used to get upset. I mean, I would get wound up, upset, angry, and you know, belligerent, <laughs> not in a rude way, but just, ah, they used to call it having an, having an, a totally. Like, don't have an Atoli, okay? They say that to other people. And um, he used to say to me all the time, like, this is not brain surgery. No one is going to die if we make a mistake, okay? No one's going to die if we get this wrong. No one's going to die if we try something and it doesn't work out, all right? We don't have to be 100% right. We have to go forward. So if I could go back... <laughs> I, I, I would change that because I, I spent a tremendous amount of emotional energy, right, which will hurt you. You know, you'll burn out um, on that kind of stuff. Hmm. And it, it, it bleeds over into your life as well. You know, it, it colors the way that you see everything. And, um, you know, you're not nearly as patient or as flexible or as forgiving or as, um, I don't know, conscious maybe. As you probably should be. Heard the. I think a lot of uh, designers could. We could save the grief if we didn't think that we were. Making the world a better place. I mean, you're just a lot of a lot of times. Which we are. Okay? I mean, we, you yeah. absolutely are. But but yeah. the agonizing over it, and like, and, and that's that, that's what about we. Early on, we talked about, you know, debating these debates about what things are called. It's the same kind of thing. That's passion. That's, that's care and concern. It's, a, it's, and it, it's based in, you know, fear of legitimacy as well. But that's okay to care about that. But it's not okay to burn so much, again, mo- mental, emotional, psychological, and physical energy in some case, cases getting that bent out of shape. It doesn't serve any purpose. Okay? And it's not helping you either. Now, it's not helping any of us be better at what we do. Yeah, the stakes are not that high. So No, they're not. Um, they're not. May, uh, maybe unless you're designing like medical hardware that like if you yeah, like it focus case, you know, chemo too could much. Die. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I actually met a designer where he actually he added intentional friction to like a chemotherapy machine. <laughs> so Jeez. That, 
you don't overdose someone. But yeah, uh, right. I could see that. For the rest of us, though, especially in digital products, like I think we could recover if Amen. something bad happened. Um, Joe, that that was a really good answer. Uh, thank you for so much for coming on the show. Is there anything that uh, you want to talk about that's coming down the pipeline? I know you got that uh, course you're working on, that workshop. Is yeah, there anything else? Couple things. Talk? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I launched this year was, is the UX 365 Academy. Um, it was basically a response to boot camps, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think are, are really good. I'm not knocking boot camps. I'm not knocking the education part or what people learn. I think that the learning part is very valuable. I do, however, think they're really overpriced. Yeah. And I think that they, they also delve into this world of perfect world rigorous process that only works when all conditions are perfect. Okay. So I wanted something that was an alternative to that. Um, so it's, it's called the UX 365 Academy. Bottom line is every course I've ever created, every ebook I've ever written, everything I've ever created for clients, training resources is all there. And I put out new content every month. I put out, you know, new mini courses, new videos, new books. The, the point is there's new content there every month. It's a subscription-based um, kind of thing. It's at a ridiculously low price, which started just because of the COVID-19 thing, right? We priced it at 14 bucks a month um, and then 19 bucks if you want to do a monthly mastermind meeting with me and a, a group of folks where we all help each other and give each other advice. Um, and to be honest with you, at the moment, I'm just keeping it there because a lot of people are, are struggling <laughs> right now. I don't see the economy coming back um, yeah. to where it should be anytime soon. So that's going to continue for the foreseeable future. You can learn more at learn.givegoodux.com. Um, and one of the big things that's happening there, I have to say this as well, is uh, my wife and I are jointly doing a course called the business of UX, which is essentially how to transition from a nine to five into a career as a freelancer or a consultant, or even start your own company or studio, which we've both done. Um, it, it's, it's everything from strategy to figuring out what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, how to price your services, the form of your business, dealing with clients, dealing with taxes, getting paid, anything and everything. It's a, it's a monster and I'm really, really excited about it. Um, basically, you know, again, if, if you want the kind of freedom I enjoy in my life, here's how we did it. And that's pretty cool. I also have um, an online community called the Give Good UX Company of Friends. It's an online Facebook group. It has become a place where people go out of their way to help other human beings with problems that they're having, you know, at, at, with their job or in learning or um, someone needs advice on, on, you know, doing user interviews or working with clients or dealing with difficult stakeholders. The generosity of this community is, is just astounding. Okay. And it's a wonderful thing. So I'd encourage people to check that out as well. Uh, you can do that at friendsgivegoodux.com and then I'll redirect you to the Facebook page. Um, so that's basically it. I may come out with another book this year if I can manage it. Wow. I don't know. Um, Man, you're... The, the, the rough draft is written. It's called, it's called, tentatively called Ending the UX Wars. And it's essentially about how to stop this between UXers and designers and stakeholders <laughs> or UXers and designers and, and, and clients. Oh, it's we about we kind of touched on that, that in this interview, so hopefully yeah, got a yeah, sneak yeah. peek to some of the ideas. Yeah, so it, it's, it's all near and dear to my heart. I, I have a problem prioritizing and I have a problem recognizing my own limitations. I just sort of refuse to admit they exist. Yeah. <laughs> to me, I'm never doing enough is the bottom line. Yeah. It, so, 
Well, Joe, it sounds like you're adding a ton of value to the community. Uh, I'll make sure to add those links to the show notes. And um, thank you. Yeah, just uh, follow Joe. He looks like he has some awesome stuff coming down the pipeline. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.